I was amazed at how well the worship set and things people said uh, prepare you for the message that I bring today, and I'm not sure how much of what how much of it was a intentional choices and how much of it was just God piecing things together. We are starting a new series today called The Story of Reality, Jesus. If you've been with us since October, we've already been in the story of reality and the story of reality Christmas, and now we've been uh, coming to this point, the story of reality, Jesus, and there will be a story of reality finale that follows this series, which is four weeks long. So I'm excited about this and intimidated because we talk Jesus all the time. And since we talk Jesus all the time, how do we fit this down into four weeks, the story of reality with this crescendo that we've placed here? So there's some intimidation there, but I'm really excited at what God has brought for us in this series. So today we are looking at week one, face-to-face. Next week, face-to-face with the king. The week after that, face-to-face with the servant. The week after that, face-to-face with God. And we're going to be talking about how this face-to-face-ness is so very personal and so very real because what Jesus has done has really happened and makes this personal relationship available to all of us. And so... Let's jump right in. We're going to begin with the question that Jesus asked his disciples. I'll put it on the screen. But who do you say that I am? When Jesus asked this question to his disciples, he didn't ask it out of the clear blue sky. As we have already noted in the series that precedes this, there were prophecies, there were promises, there were prototypes that God had pre-planned millenniums in advance for the arrival of the Christ, and he has come. Jesus then asked the question after he himself had brought the teachings and his claims and his many miraculous signs, and then he asks the question. So there's a lot of preparation. So just like in any story, context and setting is huge. So the context and setting for this question is huge because then Peter responds with an answer. We're going to be looking at this as the question for the series, who do you say that I am? And I'm hoping this whole series will help you gain confidence with your answer about who you say Jesus is in reality. So that's the purpose of this whole series. Now, In organizing this, which is a challenge, I decided to begin with another verse of Scripture. In the Scripture, it's a statement from Paul, we get the, well, let's just read it first. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, if you're like me, that takes some mulling over to think through what Paul has just stated here. So I want to read it again and let you know that he has made three amazing statements in here that point to the beginning of the story of reality, the end of the story of reality, and the purpose of the story of reality, all in this statement about the who Jesus is and So let's take a look at that in that way. For God who said, let light 
shine out of darkness, which is the beginning, Genesis, the story which we began with, made his light shine in our hearts. That's the end, the purpose to which he's doing all of this, to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So that's the purpose of the story, so that we would look face to face with Christ and know what that glory of God is all about to the degree that not only are we experiencing that glory for ourselves, but we ourselves are displaying that glory for others to want to know what it is to know God in this way, face to face. So I think that's a great place to start. But here's what we need to know about Paul, how he got here, how he got to this conclusion. So on the screen, Paul, who wrote this, knew about Jesus and hated him until he met him face to face. And when he did, something really happened. And so that's a great place to start. So welcome to the story of reality, Jesus. Here we go, point number one. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. And he wants you to turn from a darkness and turn to the light of the glory of God, which is best displayed by turning to the face of Jesus. Here's another way to put it. Face him. Face Jesus. Now, um, many of you who have heard me share some of the things that God brings my direction, I often incidentally share that they're in my prayer time. It's during a walk. I love to walk in the desert. I love an early morning walk in the desert. I love the time that God and I share and my dog and I share. Um, God and my dog. And I love the canyon rims and I love the canyon bottoms and all of the beauty that's there, particularly up tucked away in our, our area right behind the Dead Horse State Park. How many of you saw the full moon yesterday? Like yesterday morning. It was particularly brilliant. Now, the contrast between my hike on Friday, which was all daytime and lengthy, and so I saw a whole lot more, was so different from my hike yesterday morning, which started in the dark and ended in the dark, okay? So normally, I have a headlamp that I wear in those early, early morning hours. I got out of my truck, and there was no cloud in the sky, and it was so brilliantly bright I didn't need to turn my headlamp on. So my dog and I decided, hey, let's do this. And we were walking in the moonlight alone, and the first thing I noticed was, wow, how stark my shadow is, how stark my dog's shadow is. It's like the shadow contrast with the light that I'm seeing on the ground in the trail is a starker contrast than shadows you see in noonday brightness. The contrast is huge. Here's my theory. And I believe it's born by my experience, not only in that morning, but as a person that loves art. Shadows are never pitch black in the daytime. And so if you're drawing shadows, you're doing a mistake if you just black it in. 
In the daytime, the shadows fill in with ambient light. In fact, on a moonlit night, if there's clouds to reflect that light, the shadows are not as stark. So we're walking in the starkness of seeing these shadows, and all these thoughts are coming to me. And, and as we tuck behind a canyon, it's like, whoa, I can't quite see the trail that well. But that didn't happen until after something took place. I turn up a ravine that we always turn up, and I always like to start on this particular hike with this real steep boulder-to-boulder scramble, it just so happened that that particular ravine that I was scrambling up boulder-to-boulder was precisely opposite the moon, and so my shadow made it impossible for, for me to do it under the moonlight alone. It was too dangerous because the shadow was stark black. I could not see boulder or foot placement. I had to turn my lamp on. And then it hits me. I'm in the way of the light. And I'm walking away from the light. The biggest barrier in the darkest shadows of my light has been me. You ever been in darkness? And the doubts and the darkness and the downness and the anxiety and their fear or depression or the swirling, whatever it is, is really dark. You know what's going on? You are in the middle of blocking the light. And the answer is right behind you. You're walking away from faith and in fear and in depression or darkness or whatever it is and you can't even see where to put your next step because you don't have the ability to see tomorrow And in that darkness, you can't even see your next step. It just hit me. And then from the rest of the hike, I just mulled over all of those thoughts. And it was like so weird when the sunrise, before it had crested and risen, the sky was so bright, there was no more shadow. Ambient light had eliminated the shadows, even though the full moon is still up. There's so many more lessons there that I think... We need to get a hold of, but I don't have time for. You just think that through, because we've already had hints of it in this 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The reality of this story, Jesus, is that something actually happened. Now, when Paul uses these metaphors... He's not, spot, he's not talking about a metaphor. When Paul uses the light and darkness metaphor, he is not talking about a metaphor. He's talking about something that really happened to him. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 22, in Acts chapter 26, as he reiterates his story while he's on trial in the later stories. Luke is telling the first one. In Luke wrote the book of Acts. I would encourage you to do that. Look at all three of those. Well, Paul, he was a persecutor of the church. You need to know his name in a Jewish community was Saul. He also is a Roman citizen. In a Roman community, it's Paul. So you got to know that it's Saul Paul. It's not the pre-Christian name and the post-Christian name. He goes by both depending on circles, okay? So he then is the persecutor who hates Jesus and he's going after Christians and he's going to take them down. He's got to stomp out this heresy that's proclaiming a man to be God and he's got to stomp it out because it's totally wrecking havoc on Judea and Jerusalem and going beyond and it's messing everything up. 
He is on the way. He's almost there to Damascus where he's, he's going to just arrest, grab, bring back to Jerusalem for trial. All of these believers. And a brilliant light, and in the later versions of the story, says that is brighter than the sun shines all about him from heaven. And those who are with him hear this thunderous noise but can't hear what it says. He hears actually what it says. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He has fallen to the ground. His eyes are now clenched because it's too bright for him to handle. And he says, who, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Can you imagine Imagine being in that scenario where he thought Jesus is the bad guy and now he has this glorious encounter where he's called him Lord. There's nothing that can explain what he has seen other than this is divine. This is glory, beyond glory. And now he's on the ground and all the dots are starting to connect. They start to connect like this. So the disciples What they're proclaiming is right. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Not only is Jesus resurrected from the dead, just like they said, he is God. These dots are starting to connect and he has to just, his his mind is so amazing as a scholar in Old Testament, he's already starting to try, try to make sense of it, but at the same time, he has more questions than he has answers at that moment. Because when the noise is gone of the voice and the light is gone and people are picking him off the ground, he tries to see and he is blind. He's seeing more on the inside, but he's blind on the outside and his question, is this a judgment? Now, you need to read Acts and find out what happened to his blindness and that's not the purpose of our story, so we're moving on. Acts, okay? Pick up from... Chapter 9, and keep reading, it's, it's great stuff. Paul's eventual conclusion that we already read matches Jesus' claim. In John 12, 44 through 46, we read, Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Process that one. He's claiming that if you are looking at him, lowly, bodily, human Jesus, you are looking at God Almighty who has sent him. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And he's not talking merely metaphors here. I am the reality that you were trusting would come. I'm the one that all the Old Testament points to. I'm the hopes that you've been pinning all of your hopes on. He's making bold, huge claims here. John, along with Peter, along with the rest of the apostles, all come to the same conclusion that we hear from Peter, we're gonna look at in a moment, But John puts the beginning of his gospel, this really elaborate and intricate introduction, building to a climax at verse 18 that reads this way. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son 
who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, he, he's the one who has made him known. Paul's statement, Peter's statement, John's statement, Jesus' statement, and countless other statements all agree this Jesus was a man, but he was fully God. It's an amazing set of claims. T.F. Torrance, who later became a Scottish Protestant theologian and minister, was serving as a chaplain during World War II. So picture the scene, the setting, the context, the time frame. One day on a battlefield in Italy, he attended to a dying 19-year-old soldier. The dying man asked him, Padre, is, is God really like Jesus? Torrance assured the dying man with these words, God is indeed really like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. If you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. Point number two. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That was Peter's answer to the question, but who do you say that I am? And Jesus spoke that question to all the disciples and Peter very boldly, emphatically stated what he thought. Who do you say? I'll say. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now Jesus affirmed that answer. There's a lot of people out there saying stuff like Jesus never claimed it for himself, da, 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 da. (laughs) Jesus claimed it for himself, but he had to be very careful in terms of his timing. Uh, If you flip the study over to the back side, we're going to get into Matthew 16 for small groups that are doing that. Do that on your own. The timing of who he declares himself to be and when is very important. And after this little episode, it's still not time to make it public yet, but this is just for the disciples to know. And he moves on. Jesus affirmed the answer and he said, God the Father revealed this to you. This doesn't come from flesh and blood. But what's fascinating is, what do we do with that with our brains? This is not what happened. Peter asked a question. I mean, Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter hears this voice in his head. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. <gasps> really, God? That's not what happened. Peter's a little surprised that Jesus is saying, the Father has revealed this. So you need to understand how God does this is sometimes not through a voice in your head. God had already given the gift to all the disciples because they all came to that conclusion of seeing all the things that Jesus had taught, all the things that Jesus had claimed, and not all of them because he's still going to teach and claim more, and the things that he did, miraculous signs pointing to who he is. So I'm going to give you a few examples just to kind of move us into the kinds of things that they experienced. How do, why do these words, the Christ? Well, it's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament hopes. And why the words, the Son of God? So let's start at the baptism of Jesus. The disciples, a lot of them witnessed this. Matthew 3, 17, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Now, if I hear a booming voice and I ask my neighbor, did you hear that too? Yeah, I did. It's like, that's going to be a memory. 
Okay? This is my son. Where did that voice come from? They're not used to amplification. They're not looking for a speaker. They're not looking for an amp. They heard it from heaven. And they remembered it. They weren't the only ones who heard it. And I'm not talking about all the people there. Because of what happens in the next chapter when Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the prince of darkness, because this is a clash of the kingdoms when Jesus is sent. And he sends immediate, he, he's sent by the Spirit immediately into the desert. He's praying and fasting, and this is a clash of the kingdoms. It starts, and now the challenge is there because the devil heard it too. Here's what we read in chapter 4. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, and he heard the Father say it, he's trying to now pull the carpet right out from underneath the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. We'll just leave that alone. That's a sermon all by itself. we got to move on now. It's not just the Satan himself. The disciples were witnesses over and over again. People were not the first ones to verbalize who Jesus was. Demons were. They heard verbalization through demon-possessed people, things like this, Matthew 8, 29. What do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? They heard this, son of God. The demons are all pointing to him as the opponent that's come to destroy them. Before their appointed time, They even know it's coming. So the Father has given them experiences and observations that help them try to figure out what is going on. Well, things like when you see Jesus confront the chaos of the sea and you're fishermen and you know what that chaos is, it's death on water and can speak it into peace and calm the storm, you have this kind of reaction in Matthew 14, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This statement has taken place before Peter's great confession, putting it all together. Worshipped him. Now, If you read Revelation, you see a lot of people worshiping and attempting to worship angels, and angels will say, no, no, no. And you see this frequently in the Bible. You never worship an angel. You only worship God. Jesus doesn't say no, 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 because Jesus is God. And they bowed and worshiped in this moment. All this combined with You won't have this on the screen. Colossians 2.9, if you want to jot it down. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How dare these people, these theologians, these Jews, look at Jesus and say he's God. How could they dare? They've been taught that there's one God and only one God. They've been taught that, and we're not it. And they've been taught that, and God, if you see God face to face, you'll die. 
He's spirit. He's glorious. He's beyond our capacity to interface with. See God and know me. And yet they say this. And I think it has to do with many exposures. Now these are theologians thinking this through of their Old Testament after the fact. Like this one in Genesis. Then the man, uh, I just need to give you context here. Jacob, who is the one who eventually his name changes, he's the grandson of Abraham, his name changes to Israel at, at, because of this event, whose this name becomes the name of the nation that God promised to Abraham and promised to Isaac and promised to Jacob. This is the moment, but this is what we read. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. Now, it's a weird passage. He's been wrestling with God most of the night, but this God has a body. This God has been wrestling with him, and it's nighttime. You can't really see him, but it's about to be dawn. And then this, this bodily God is saying, let me go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And then this bodily God touches his hip, and he's got a limp from that time forward, and yet Jacob will not let go. This is what I, why I'm telling you all this. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Which means face of God. Saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. There's a number of these in the Old Testament even where Jesus shows up on earth before he came as a baby. That's my theory. That's my story. I'm sticking with it. Okay? Point number one, if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. Point number two, because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and looking into the face of Jesus is, point number three, how we can look at God's glory. Wait just a minute. We can see how the disciples learn from Jesus' face. Actual, in reality, face to face. We have an actual, in reality, seen Jesus face to face. We can see how they can see God's glory. Come on. We can see how Paul saw Jesus face to face. I mean, he was literally knocked down by the glory of Jesus. We get that. Why are you talking to us about seeing Jesus face to face? What about us? How can we see the glory of God displayed in the face of Jesus in Reality. That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Please come back next week. I'm done. Just kidding. Um, actually, Jesus says something about this very question. John chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. This is after his resurrection. Thomas was the last holdout. And then he comes out with the greatest declaration, my Lord and my God. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. I love that because he's talking about me. <laughs> and he's talking about you. We're blessed if, unlike Thomas, we come to believe even though we have not seen. And then we need to ask, well, how, how, 
how, what is that blessing? And so I, I just want to follow up with a few comments. First, they saw him face to face. That is they, Paul, the disciples. We can see him face to face by faith. Okay, and that's what we're talking about here. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We can come to God face to face by faith. And I want to talk about this, and John tells us next, in the next verse, exactly how. John 20, 30-31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these, which are recorded in this book, the Gospel of John, John is writing, have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Alexander McLaren, a preacher that preached over 100 years ago, said, it is not mere beholding the face of Christ, but the gaze of love and trust that molds us. He continued, you have been trying and trying and trying half your lifetime to cure your faults and make yourself better and stronger. Try this other option, this other plan. Let love draw you instead of duty drive you. Let fellowship with Christ elevate you instead of seeking to struggle up the steeps on hands and knees. Live in the sight of your Lord and catch his spirit. So here's my challenge to you. Now, many of you have reading plans and you're like really gung-ho and you're getting a lot out of it, okay? You don't need to feel like heaping this on, but if you want to, here's my next step. Why not decide today to stare into the face of Jesus by reading John's gospel throughout the duration of this series? There it is, next step for those of you thinking about taking it. Only those who see Jesus face-to-face -face already here and now by faith we'll see him face to face then with approval and blessing forever in reality. Do I need to say that again or do you get it? Only those who see Jesus face to face already here and now by faith will see him face to face then with approval and blessing forever. Everybody will eventually see Jesus in his glory at judgment but not everybody will have his blessing. To have his blessing forever and ever, we need to see him face to face here and now, before that day. I want to kind of give you a picture of what that can look like. Brennan Manning tells this story. Several years ago, Edward Farrell of Detroit took his two-week vacation to Ireland to celebrate his favorite uncle's 80th birthday. On the morning of the great day, Ed and his uncle got up before dawn, dressed in silence, and went for a walk along the shores of Lake Killarney. Just as the sun arose, his uncle turned and stared straight at the rising orb. You can only do that when it's low on the horizon. Ed stood beside him for 20 minutes with not a single word exchanged. 
Then the elderly uncle began to skip along the shoreline, a radiant smile on his face. After catching up with him, Ed commented, Uncle Seamus, you look very happy. Do you want to tell me why? Yes, lad, the old man said, tears washing down his face. You see, the father is fond of me. Aha, me father is so very fond of me. Today we're going to finish with an ancient blessing comes out of Numbers. I'll put it on the screen. It's okay to pray with your eyes open. It's always okay to pray with your eyes open, by the way. That's actually more common practice than what we teach. We teach it in children's church because... Okay? <laughs> the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's up to you to receive that blessing. You need to look to his face. We have a prayer team that's going to gather to the left of the stage to pray for you about anything. I can't wait to see you next week in the next episode of Face to Face, Face to Face with the King. I hope you have a great day and take that blessing with you. God bless you. See you next week.